My name is Peter van Hulst, and I was eighteen when I was forced to leave my parental home in a town located in the south of Holland. Not because I was thrown out or anything, but because the atmosphere quickly became unbearable after, after my stepmother had hung herself on a damp summer night in 1987. The worst thing about her passing was the silence that remained. My father was so stunned by grief that he only spoke to me when he absolutely needed to. I tried to talk to him, I really did, but he would just do everything he would normally do, but without speaking. When he got home from work, he would prepare a microwavable meal for us, and the rest of the night he would just watch dumb sitcoms. I vividly remember how the screen illuminated his face, and how there was no sign of emotion on it. The death of his wife had made him go completely numb. It seemed like somebody had scraped out his soul, and he had turned into a shell of the man he used to be. Call me selfish, but I realized quickly that I needed to leave that house, and the zombie that my dad had become. I would start my studies in September, which made moving to Amsterdam a logical and convenient step. Over the course of that tragic summer, I had chosen to go study anthropology, a decision I would already regret after only six months. But at that time, still confused by the dramatic event that had destroyed my family, and blinded by childish ignorance, I chose not to listen to the people around me. Back then, I still lived under the naive assumption that you had to choose your study because you liked its subject matter, not because you could earn a living with it. Despite many warnings about the scarce job offers in the anthropology field, I registered for a bachelor's in the vibrant city of Amsterdam, mostly excited about the fact I got to move away from the house which I grew up in, in which the smell of death lingered. During that summer, I underestimated almost everything. For example, I thought finding a room was easy, something you could arrange in a few days, if you really tried. And at first it seemed that way. Through a friend from high school, I found a small but pleasant room in a good neighbourhood of the capital. I had already met up with my soon-to-be housemates when I received a call from my landlord on the 17th of August. His nephew turned out to be looking for a home as well and logically his own family had priority. I had not yet signed a contract, which meant that I was officially not entitled to anything yet. The landlord apologised and wished me good luck at finding a new room. I wanted to ask him for tips, but he had hung up on me before I had the chance. At first I was angry with him, obviously, but I was still in good spirits. I had not planned much in those last weeks of August, and I reasoned that if I would actively look for a room during my spare time, something would come up sooner or later. I was wrong. The days flew by, and as the days got shorter I began to worry. Every day I went out of my way to avoid my father, because he might have well been a ghost, still grieving in his own peculiar way. I'd had no special bond with my stepmother. On the contrary, actually, when I was younger, I had projected my frustration over my parents' divorce on her. We had frequent quarrels, and a depression following a burnout had changed her for the worse. But that was all forgivable, had it not resulted in her suicide. 
the thought that a human being had killed herself on the property where we were supposed to live. I hated her for it. Because of her, the place felt haunted. Even today, many years later, the thought of my father finding her lifeless body dangling in the shed makes me shiver. The idea that she had performed that horrible act in the same house where I made so many pleasant memories, it was just horrible to me. While I spent the final days of my summer break trying to find a room, my friends were still having fun on the beach. In the days before the internet, I was forced to use the telephone to make inquiries. I consulted all my friends, but none of them had the tip for me that led to an affordable room. On Saturdays I would desperately scour the Amsterdam supermarkets, hoping to find a housing offer on the notice boards. Only after three days of searching, going from supermarket to supermarket, I found an advertisement for a home in the west part of the city. I noted the number and went over to a telephone booth. I got lucky. The landlord picked up right away. Due to the sound of his voice, I knew that the man who greeted me had to be a smoker. His voice was deep and raspy. He spoke as if every word troubled him deeply. I told him of my enthusiasm for the room he advertised. He told me that the room I mentioned was unfortunately already taken by someone else, but he said that he still had something in the Bielma, the worst neighbourhood of Amsterdam, at least during that time. Nothing special, he said, with a bare rent of 150 gulden, which was relatively cheap at the time. I responded enthusiastically, while he muttered something about the deposit. He said that I could come by that same evening, if that was all right. He gave me the address and hung up the phone. That evening I stopped at his house. His apartment smelled like cats and cigarettes, and I got a strange vibe from him. He was twitching all the time, blinking almost constantly. But after he made me sign some papers, he gave me the key and sent me on my way. He said that if I wished, I could check it out right away. It had been vacant for some time, but the furniture was still there. I found it odd that there was still furniture inside the room, but he said it was not that special. Furnished places were pretty common in the big city, with its many travellers and short-time contracts. I had found out that the house was close to a metro stop. I bought a ticket, and while the train moved on, I looked through the dirty window and saw how the historic buildings and beautiful canal houses slowly gave way to more modern constructions, like it was transitioning into a completely different town. I had never been in the Bielma before, but of course I was aware of the worthless reputation that the newest part of Amsterdam had built up over the years. Originally it was meant to function as a quiet suburb for young couples and rich people who'd like to be close to the city but the aimed market had left Amsterdam for other cities with cheaper real estate, and instead of them, poor folk and immigrants had made the Bialma their home. It was a city district that had deteriorated quickly over the course of just a few years. There was a lot of crime, occasional liquidations, drug deals and theft. But what I saw through the window of the metro did not look like a place where you would expect stuff like that. It didn't look rough, but not exactly pleasant either. The grey modern flats and the wide streets gave this part of town a strange atmosphere, like it was soulless, devoid of history. 
I noticed that there were hardly any people on the street, someone walking a dog here and there, but not much else going on. Even before I left the metro, the neighbourhood gave me a feeling of isolation, as if I were entering an area where lots of people lived, but nobody would care if something happened to you. I walked towards my flat, a grey, tall building with small windows. A black man was smoking in front of the door. His face remained partly hidden in his hood, even though it was quite warm outside. It lit up briefly when he took a drag of his cigarette. I hesitated for a moment, but decided to greet him. He briefly took his cigarette out of his mouth, and I thought he would say something, but he just looked at me briefly, and probably wondered what a white kid like me was doing in this part of town. Somewhat intimidated by this encounter, I opened the door as quickly as possible with my new key and went upstairs. The landlord had told me that my room was on the top floor, and I was surprised that there was no elevator in the fairly new building. The room itself was nothing special, a small studio with an even smaller balcony, and the basic necessities, an old fridge, an Ikea bed, and a worn couch. I put the plug of the refrigerator in the socket and glanced out of my window. Grey skies and tall grey flats, as far as I could see. This might as well have been the Soviet Union, I remember thinking to myself, but the room itself was decent enough. At least everything was as promised. I made up the bed and stored the stuff I had brought from home. After I opened the door to my balcony, a few pigeons abruptly flew away. When I looked down, I noticed that the lower roof was almost connected to my balcony. I could have easily jumped down without hurting myself. I didn't really think about it twice, but kept in mind that I should always lock the door to the balcony, just in case. For a few days, life was fine. The first days at university were exciting, and I was happy I had a room for myself in which I was free from misery and could cook whatever food I liked. When I came home on my third evening, after a long day, I noticed that the stairway smelled rancid. It was a subtle smell that I could not place properly, but it got noticeably stronger as I went up. When I saw a garbage bag outside of one of my neighbour's doors, I suspected it had to be the cause of the smell. Something must be rotting inside that bag, I thought. I quickly went inside, and was glad that the unpleasant smell disappeared the moment I locked the door behind me. That evening I read something and tried to study a little from bed, but for some reason my mind wandered to the bag that most likely was still stinking in the hallway. I turned off the light and closed my eyes. I was so tired I didn't even bother to brush my teeth before dozing off. But just then, quite sudden, a loud noise woke me up. It sounded like a screech or maybe a scream. I was still too dazed to realise exactly what it was or where it exactly came from. I reassured myself it must have been a cat or something. It took me a while to get to sleep, though, for I suddenly felt uncomfortable in the studio, where the nooks and corners were still unfamiliar to me. The following day I returned to my studio, after a short day at university. It was an interesting day, though, on which I had spoken to a nice female fellow student. The day had given me hope, and I was almost cheerful when I rode the train home. I just had to give my new place some time, I told myself. As long as I was patient, I would get used to it. But when I got home, my hope immediately dispersed. 
Halfway up the stairwell, a man was rolling a cigarette. I smelled him before I saw him. A stench that belongs to vagrants and old sick men. A smell of smoke and old sweat from clothes that haven't been washed for ages. I passed him as quickly as I could, and was already relieved that the man seemed to keep to himself when I heard a hoarse voice ask if I was new to the flat. I turned around and felt my heart beating in my throat. The smell was unbearable now. I nodded. You're the new one on the fifth, right? He said. I nodded again. Oh, they come and go there. He coughed in a disgusting manner. He then looked at me with his piercing eyes. Haven't seen anything strange there, kid? I shook my head. Have you not heard of the pigeon man yet? Said the man. After he spoke the words, his teeth showed, or rather, what was left of them. His fangs were a dark yellow, as if he hadn't brushed those teeth specifically, but a surprisingly healthy tooth in the middle remained, and gleamed in the fluorescent light. I couldn't stop myself from staring at it. The man repeated his question. I shook my head again. The pigeon man. You will meet him, I know that for sure. I know that for sure, kid, he said. I shivered, but tried not to show my fear. I'd just met this man, but I already had the strong feeling I needed to get away from him. But don't you worry, kid, he said then. He won't hurt you. Then he started to laugh. A high-pitched and loud shrill filled the stairwell. It was the laugh of a madman. His laugh echoed and became louder and louder, and while he laughed and laughed, I smelled his filthy breath and saw that lonely tooth shimmer again. I was so disgusted by him that I quickly turned to get to my room. The man stopped abruptly. The silence that remained would have been nice if there were no oppressive uneasiness to take its place. Without looking at the man any longer, I went up the stairs slowly, even though I wanted to run, and I prayed to the heavens that I would never see that filthy face again. I had always been a somewhat nervous boy, and my stepmother once said that I was too sensitive to atmosphere, that sometimes I could feel things other people couldn't. When I entered my room, I had the strange sensation that someone was there. I immediately shook that thought off. It was a ridiculous feeling, I told myself rationally. It must have been the tiredness, or being in this strange place and meeting this horrible man. But after a few minutes, I got the same feeling again, that I was not alone. Even though I was almost ashamed of myself now, I checked the bathroom and the storage room, just to be sure, but there was nothing. I thought of what the creepy man had said about the pigeon man. That night I went to sleep early. In the middle of the night I was woken again by a strange sound. I lay there in the dark while I noticed a subtle scratching. It was like the sound that's produced when you scratch your nails over a blackboard. It was not as loud, though, and I figured it must come from outside. A rat inside of the piping, maybe? Nibbling on something? Or trying to get through a wall? The sound continued for a bit, but I didn't get up. It was almost a point I was making to myself. 
Rats are common in this town. You better get used to it, I said to myself. After a while, the noise suddenly stopped, and soon after, I fell asleep again. The next morning, I'd forgotten all about it, till I noticed some scratch marks on the glass of the door that led to my balcony. Thin scratches on my window, three in a row. I wasn't completely sure if the marks were new, or that they'd been there before, but they still made me think. I left for class in a hurry, worrying what might have caused them. Maybe a bird had struck the window, or a cat had tried to get in, I figured. That night, the same scratching noise awoke me. I looked at my alarm clock and saw that it was ten past two. This time, I got out of bed and put on some clothes. I walked towards the door that led to my balcony, and I heard the scratching sound grow louder. I pulled away the curtains, and what I saw made my breathing stop. There he was, the pigeon man. He was out there on my balcony, one hand against the glass, his gross, long nails against the window, scratching the glass. The man was dressed in filthy brown rags, and sat on my balcony, half hidden in the blackness of the night. In the dark, I only saw his eyes glisten, like two beads in a dark cavity. I froze. He was less than half a meter away from my window. I couldn't remember if I had even locked that door to the balcony that afternoon. Then he approached the window, shuffling on his bare feet, until he was less than a few centimeters away from the glass. His skin was pale, and his eyes looked clueless and confused, a gaze that reminded me of Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, after he gets the lobotomy. It was an empty gaze, so unpredictable and strange, that I wanted nothing more than to turn my eyes away from it. But I didn't, feeling too scared to lose sight of the creep that was lurking on my balcony, and had been there for God knows how long. He must have made the jump from the lower roof to my balcony. He had probably watched me before while I went around the flat. He was so close to the window now that I could see the light from my room reflecting on his pale face. I shivered at the sight of him, and wanted to scream something, chase him away, like I had chased away the birds days before, but my throat was dry, and there was no sound. Then he broke his gaze, and he seemed to produce something that looked like a grin. He reached for something that was wrapped around his waist in a leather pouch, and because of the darkness, only when he held it out in front of him did I see what it was. It was the carcass of a pigeon. The dead animal lay with its chest upward in the man's filthy hands. His nails curled around the bird's fat chest. He turned his eyes back to mine. Then he put his hands forward like he was offering me the dead pigeon. And that view, that terrible sight, still haunts me today. That image of the pigeon man who offered his prey to me like a cat bringing the animals he caught to his owner. And he looked at me then with questioning eyes. Only then did the tears come. I felt the warm water running down my cheeks, and I screamed like a child, so overcome with fear that I stumbled twice as I made my way to the exit of the apartment. I grabbed my backpack off the ground and left the rest. 
I never even returned for my stuff. The pigeon man could have it all. It's just stuff, completely replaceable. I can live without money or comfort even, as long as I never have to see his glistening eyes again. Do you enjoy listening to a darker tale? Consider supporting the podcast on Patreon. Even one dollar a month will help us get out stories more regularly. Go to patreon.com stroke a darker tale. Thanks for your support. This story is released under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 International Creative Commons license. This story was narrated by Peter Yearsley. It was written by A Darker Tale. Follow A Darker Tale on Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.